Hello, friends, and a happy new year to you all. We have officially completed yet another revolution around the sun, and it is the perfect time to have a few moments for yourself and really focus on who you want to be in 2023. Um, I, you know, always really enjoy this time because it just gives me a chance to reflect on where I am, where I've been, and where I want to go. I'm not the same person I was last year. I'm not even the same person I was last week. None of us are. Every single moment we experience shapes who we are right now, no matter how big or small those experiences may seem. They all play an integral role in crafting the reality you currently experience and will continue to experience. Now, this can feel pretty overwhelming. It can make it seem like every single minute decision carries so much weight, and we can have a tendency to get frozen, stuck in a cycle of worrying about making the wrong decision. But this year, I'm making the decision to not let this scare me, and to instead be a source of inspiration. If the multiverse theory holds true, and there really are infinite yous out there, then that means that in any given moment, you can decide to be someone else. If you feel as if your current life path isn't what you envisioned, now is the perfect time to introduce new experiences and start walking along a different one. This might be as simple as just changing your commute to work by walking down a different street, or as big as moving to a different city. Maybe you start trying to listen to a new genre of music, or maybe you decide it's finally time to quit that job that's been causing you so much stress. The point being, at any given moment, you can decide to be someone new. It's easy to just keep the same routine day in and day out, watching the same shows, listening to the same music, eating the same food, and there are times when that's necessary. Maybe those routines are part of what's keeping you on the path to being the you you envision for yourself. But if it's not serving you, then you owe it to yourself to make those changes. Change your energy. Open your mind to new ways of thinking, and you'll soon find that the world is actually full of possibilities, and, dare I say, a little bit of magic. For our next episode in our series on death, we are speaking with a palliative care nurse and nursing historian. I'm actually a little ashamed to admit that I had not even heard the term palliative care until a few years ago, and if you've had any experience with the palliative care team, you understand why they are such an important part of our healthcare system. When faced with a medical emergency, we tend to be very focused on the physical aspects of health. Keep the heart beating. Keep this person alive. But a more challenging conversation is what does alive really mean? If a medical procedure can buy us more time with that person, then what does that time actually look like? What are the consequences of that decision from both a physical perspective, but from a spiritual one as well? Would this person want to be kept alive if it meant that they were physically unable to communicate anymore? What does quality of life really mean from person to person? These are just some of the extremely difficult things a palliative care team can help individuals and family members grapple with. And my next guest does it with a level of grace that truly feels angelic to me. We had an amazing conversation about what she's learned about death and living throughout her career. Please welcome to Self-Assembly, Dr. Tori Tucker. Tucker, thank you so much for joining us here on Self-Assembly. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Zach. You feel like family, so I'm really excited to be here and talk about something that is near and dear to my heart and something that all of us will experience at some point or another, personally or peripherally. You know, it, it's funny that you say that uh, I feel like family to you because I remember the first time I met you, even though it was over FaceTime, I think um, the first thing I said to my fiance, Shannon, after I got off the phone with you was that Tori is an angel. Um, and, and I, I really, I really felt that way because you helped us through one of the most challenging things that 
we've ever dealt with as a couple. Um, I know that it was something that I had very little experience navigating and you were truthfully just an absolute beacon of light helping us navigate all the complexities and the intricacies of not just the the healthcare system, but just the process of losing someone and and what that means. Um, but before we get into the the kind of deeper conversation, I'm wondering if you can just introduce yourself to the audience, uh, talk a little bit about your work, what you do, um, just so we can get to know the wonderful person that we're talking to today. Hello, listeners. Um, I always tell my patients that I'm going to treat them like family and their loved ones and family members like family. So to the audience, um, welcome to um, my living room. And I look forward to just sitting in some conversations about death, about dying, but really the central theme of living in life, which is connected to that topic. Um, My name is Victoria Tucker. Um, I'm a nurse, but I also have my PhD in nursing with a particular focus in nursing history. I look at the history of Black nurses in Virginia between the 1950s and 1980s. And so I'm really interested in how nursing um, is a profession um, that's not really only um, stuck in care, but involves so many aspects of life. So when we think of nursing, we often think of the hospital. But when I think of nursing, I also think of homes. I think of facilities. I think of neighborhoods. I think of um, communities. I think of segregation. I think of desegregation. So many various topics. And so while I wear my nursing history hat, and that informs the work that I do, I also am a palliative care nurse. And we will have an opportunity to unpack what a palliative care nurse is and what hospice is and end of life care. Um, But before I tell you those aspects, I do wanna add that I am a daughter um, to Cheryl and Larry. So that's a title that I wear very proudly and a big sister to my brother, Alex, who is the cooler sibling, um, the younger sibling and much much more um, sophisticated than I am. But I don't I'm proud. <laughs> oh, oh no! <laughs> he, shameless plug for insert name. He has a, a clothing wear and streetwear, and um, owns a creative spot called the Spot, where he works with other Black entrepreneurs and showcasing amazing talent in the DMV area. So he is the cooler sibling by far. Um, but in addition to being a nurse, I get to be a daughter, a sister, a godmother, a friend, a line sister. Um, a neighbor, and that's sort of who I am. I love that you uh, you integrated all of that into who you are, uh, because I yeah I feel like that's so much of uh, and especially in an area like this, right? People ask who you are and and what you identify as, and and we always go straight to the straight to the job. But knowing that we are all so much more than just what we do every day for na- for nine to five, I I think that's that's something we all need to keep in mind a lot more as we're identifying ourselves because it you know it, it affects it's it's your it's the way you are pers- are conveying yourself to another but it's also how you're conveying it to your own personal self as well um one thing you did mention in there is that you are a palliative care nurse and um i if i'm being honest with you and i alluded to this situation that we met to earlier um, I had never heard of palliative care until I, I went through this experience that I mentioned um, at the top, which will be unpacked in a later episode. Um, but I, I do want to um, just kind of start there. What what is palliative care, and and why? Like, how does it fit into the greater landscape of healthcare in America? Excellent question. So, palliative care is a form of specialized care. And I say that because oftentimes, sometimes families hear that word and they associate it with, we've given up, we've stopped treatment, we're not doing anything. And I want to be clear that palliative care is a form of medical care and specialized care. It is a holistic interdisciplinary approach that is available to patients that have serious illnesses. Sometimes majority of the time, those serious illnesses may be chronic illnesses. They could be serious illnesses where um, there have been discussions about whether the disease is curable or not. 
Um, or it could be that you're still in the stages of a, a new diagnosis, being it cancer, congestive heart failure, um, it could be renal disease, it could be that you um, have experienced some type of neurological um, new disease process. And so in a nutshell, it is holistic care, specialized care for patients who have serious illnesses. It is not restricted to being in the terminal stages of that disease process. That is hospice care and hospice care falls under the umbrella of palliative care. And so I like to say that palliative care is sort of your, your introduction to um, really asking some of the questions that matter. And these are questions that I would say that ideally in an ideal scenario would be asked at every stage, whether um, you are being born and you're in labor and delivery, or you're just going for your annual checkup, or um, you find yourself with a more serious illness, be it like an oncology um, diagnosis, so a cancer diagnosis, but it's not restricted to end of life. And that's the biggest thing that I, I want to focus on. And one of the wonderful things about palliative care is that there are different modes. So you can be consulted in a hospital setting. So in an acute care setting like the hospital where there may be a consult team and that team would take care of your loved one and round, um, but there's also palliative care clinics in some hospitals um, where there are outside clinics where you may actively be getting treatment and palliative is consulted simply with the focus of how can we improve your quality of life while you are receiving curative treatments or non-curative treatments for your illness or disease. And so that's very long-winded, I realize. And so please ask me further questions because I wanna make sure that palliative care feels accessible, um, that it is more approachable and not seen as something that is a, um, a negative in which we have withdrawn care because really we're leaning in and more fully to engaging in a care that is more personal and can be dynamic and inclusive of not just the patient, but their family. It's collaborative and it's supposed to be. And what you just hit on is what I thought was so incredible about it. And and what frankly shocked me that I, how did I not know this was a thing? And the phrase that really sort of made it more clear to me what was actually going on, what this team of palliative care is built to do is this is the idea of comfort care is this idea that we are we recognize that you are in this hospital setting i i guess maybe how how would it differ from like traditional quote unquote care i'm i'm using air quotes because i yeah. i think it's silly to to split the two because there's yeah. so much more to health than just you know treating your body like a machine right and getting Absolutely. levels and stuff yeah just explain to me what what the difference is between that and traditional care so again in an ideal world palliative care, or let's say the philosophies of palliative care, right? A holistic approach to care, an interdisciplinary approach, focusing on quality of life, having goals of care discussions, being collaborative with the patients and families. Really, that should not be restricted to when you are working with the palliative care team. Ideally, we would get this training and experience, and this would be sort of indoctrinated in medicine, in totality. So whether you are seeing your um, cardiologist, your urologist, your oncologist, your OBGYN, your psychologist, um, no matter who you were seeing, your primary care provider, in an ideal world, some of the philosophies, the questions that we're asking, the involvement that we're doing, it would be a part of that care. But we know that there are specialties, and a lot of times there are specialties for reasons, and it is because, again, this is a specialized um specialized identified care in which nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, doctors, chaplains, social workers, um, even our care partners or, or, or patient care technicians receive specialized training and care to walk with patients and walk with families throughout the continuum. And this is where palliative care, I would say, is unique. So we really do look at symptom management we look at goals of care, which have been established by the patient and the family. And I would like to say that this is a living um, exercise in which there are going to be changes 
there may be goals and changes and we revisit it. And so it is meant to be collaborative. It's meant to be expansive. It's meant to be more interactive. And I think because as palliative care providers, as palliative care um, advocates, we have this focus and goal in mind, we're able to provide that service. But to your point, ideally, and maybe one day we will get to a place where this is so embedded in our healthcare culture that whether you're inpatient or being seen in the community, it is a part of it. And no matter who you're seeing, it's a part of that care. Now, hospice and end-of-life care is different. So in palliative care, you can be full code. Full code meaning you maybe have expressed wishes that should my heart stop and I am unresponsive, yes, I would like CPR. But then there are specifics. Do you, you may want CPR done, but you may say, you know what? I do not want to be intubated and I do not want to be on a ventilator. And so there, part of the goals of care conversation in palliative care, which can be again at the beginning of a diagnosis all the way to the end, because hospice and end of life care is looped in, is sort of asking some of those questions that oftentimes, if I'm honest, we don't talk about until we are in very challenging situations or cha challenging in the sense that either I didn't see this coming, um, I'm now forced to make decisions under under stressful situations. A family member is now forced to make decisions for me because I never talked about it. And so when palliative care gets introduced earlier, we start having a lot of these conversations because us, we're, the providers are more comfortable usually having these conversations, but we start having them earlier. And it may be when you're still seeking curative measures. And so that's where palliative care sort of differs in specialty. But again, I think as we evolve and as we really start asking some of these deeper questions, I think you will start to see more disciplines involving a palliative care philosophy um, or the concepts that are embedded in palliative care to their, their practice. But for right now, I will say, in my personal experience, I do still see a need for someone to step in who is a palliative care um, trained specialist to, to ask some of these tough questions or to support teams as they're doing this work. Because many teams are doing this work because they may not have access to a palliative care team. So it's collaborative, it's growing, it's expansive. It's been around for years, but I would say that it has experienced um, I think some of the in the backseat funding in the backseat attention um, because it's difficult. I think sometimes it's difficult for um, it's difficult. It's been difficult for us as as a healthcare um, I'll say industry because really healthcare has become an industry as a healthcare industry. I think to even ask its own tough questions of. Is it okay if surgery is not the best option? Is it okay um, if treatment is not the best option? Um, perhaps we don't wanna go forward with an experimental um, new drug. Perhaps we wanna do something different. And I think we're asking some of those questions because science and technology has taken us very, very far. Um, but also as, as, a, as a population and as in terms of the human experience, there is still great suffering. And I think that is where technology and science alone cannot answer that. And I think palliative care adds humanity and dignity um, back, into, um, back into the fold and, and ensures that that's a priority. Well, you're, you're forcing people to grapple with this impossible to contain idea of how do you potentially want the the last of your days to be right is that is that accurate or i would in say some yes ways? yes i would say yes in some ways and i think to add to that before we can think about how do you want your last days to be how do you want your current days to be because i think right. in palliative care you could be you could be working with a palliative care team on and off as your symptoms improve as they, um, or as they advance. And so the involvement may look different in terms of what you need. And so sometimes the first question is, 
what does quality of life look like for you? Tell me about, tell me, I'll, I'll pretend that you're one of my patients. Zach, it's an honor to meet you. Can you tell me more about who you are and, and what's important to you? Um, and you may share things with me. So I'd love to do this exercise with you. Can you tell me more about it. who you are and what's important to you? What's important to me, I think, is to be very conscious about the decisions that I'm making with my family, to be in a frame of mind where I can be setting my family and loved ones and whoever they may be up to um, be prepared for for whatever we face. I My quality of life uh, it would be not being in a state of suffering, not being in a state of pain, um, also not prolonging anything just for the sake of keeping the, the vital signs going. Um, quality of life is being able to, I guess, move on my own, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's th th those are probably the big ones. I th I don't I'm going to I'm going to stop myself there because I would probably ramble for the rest of this episode on that one question. <laughs> but okay, so yeah, I think those are some good basic ones. I I think that that's really helpful. So thank you Zach again for sharing that. And what I heard from that conversation is that family is important to you. So them having access to you and you having access to them is important. Um I also heard that you're open to having these conversations in a way where your care team knows your wishes and desires should you never, should you find yourself in a situation where you're unable to make decisions on your own, but also potentially your fiance or your family. Um, so you may already have decision makers in mind, um, should you ever need someone to advocate for you. And that part of quality of life is having some form of agency, but also reduction in, in suffering. Um, and sometimes that means reduction in um, pain, physical pain. It could be mental or spiritual pain and anguish, um, but that you would be open to working with a team should you ever need it and ensuring that your symptoms allow you to be present as much as possible, um, that allows you to be present with your family um, and able to, to share and be engaging, um, but not to the limit of you um, suffering and being in pain. So this is helpful. And I think it's a great exercise. And again, we only like touched on the surface because there's something called an advanced directive where you can place these wishes more formally so that loved ones have sort of a guide, but also your healthcare team has a guide. It's a, it's a document that again can be a, a living document that can change and be adapted and updated, but it is a, a formal document that really states what your potential wishes are. And there are, there are certain documents in different states that allow you to be more explicit in terms of examples. Um, and so we did something more broadly, but I think this was a great exercise. And again, you brought up something that I think a lot of people sometimes don't have the the choice of they're having to make these decisions and they're not home. They're having to make these decisions and their preference maybe is to be home, but now they found themselves in the hospital. And so because I'm a palliative care nurse, I get to see a little bit of both. And I see scenarios where patients are maybe at the beginning of a serious illness and we're consulted just to help them with their symptoms. So that could be pain, could be nausea, it could be fatigue, um, it could be inability to sleep, um, like sleep disturbances. It could be sort of the existential crisis that can come up during this time. And we may collaborate alongside other teams because those teams are leading. And we're there until there's this moment where we need to pivot and then palliative becomes the lead team. Or we may always be in the back seat, but those patients and families know that we're advocating with them, we're collaborating broadly. But then there are scenarios where patients are admitted to the hospital and we're consulted because they're in the ICU and they've had to have some goals of care conversation that are really challenging. Or we could be cons consulted in the ER and it's an emergency scenario um, and something's unexpected. And in those cases, sometimes the conversation is palliative care, but with a, instead of just a 
um, palliative care focus, we're now also adding comfort care slash end of life care. And that's where okay. hospice comes in. And palliative is the overarching theme. Hospice falls underneath palliative care. Um, and that's the focus on you may, it's been projected that you have six months or less to live. You probably have a serious illness. It's not exclusive to cancer. A lot of times think of palliative care and hospice and that being something involved if you have a cancer diagnosis, but it could be a cardiac diagnosis. It could be a neurological diagnosis. It could be related to kidney function. Um, it could be a sudden accident. It could be a trauma. We do see a lot of traumas and injuries where there are things that are sudden and we're forced to have those, those reckonings and those conversations what feels like a lot of times for families prematurely. And so that's where I hope in our conversation today with your your listeners, with your viewers, your collaborators, um, that we can start unpacking what it means to have those conversations earlier. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's that is ultimately at the end of the day, why I'm focusing on this, because we do need to have more conversations about what this phase that every single human being on earth is going to experience. And the more we can not be afraid of them, the the easier these transitions are, are going to be for us. Um, and so I guess this is a very basic question, but I guess why is palliative care important? Why is it important that you have a team of people focusing on everything that we've just touched on in addition to, and I'm not, I, I'm, I don't want this to turn into a like I'm shitting on doctors kind of a conversation, but you know, I was going to say the, the very, the sort of mechanical aspects of like, here's this disease, here's how we treat it, et cetera. So I have, I would say that I, I see your question in two parts. And I think this goes back to the introduction when you asked me, who am I? Um, and so from a professional standpoint, I think, the same way that would you want someone who is not a cardiologist doing open heart surgery on you? It's not to say that other specialties don't have broad knowledge. It's not to say that they can't intervene and, and do this work, but we have specialties currently, the way that our healthcare model is set up is that we have specialties because there are very unique nuances when it comes to the human body and there are needs, um, there are medications, there are treatment regimens, there are signs and symptoms that are very specific. And so the same way that you would have a cardiologist, you perhaps would see a cardiologist for, I don't know, valve repair, um, cardiac catheterization and ablation, um, the overseement of congestive heart failure, um, bypass surgery, and you would feel comfortable seeing your cardiologist as they're prescribing you medications, working with you on your diet, on, um, on your outcomes. You see them because they're specialized. And you know that part of that specialization gives you access to someone who has been sitting in the experience of those patients, bearing witness to the experience of those patients, who's been hopefully trained educated, mentored, um, and collaborating with other disciplines under the specialty and focus of cardiology. Well, palliative care is the same way. And I say that because in the same way we give such intensity and respect um, and, and um, sort of see the, the importance of a cardiologist and a specialist, I want us to sort of see that in someone that has specialized in palliative care you know, we're not the low, the low um, healthcare team on the totem pole. Really, we are the eyes and ears and heart for our patients mm. across their healthcare continuum. And we're bearing witness no matter their diagnosis. We're bearing witness no matter what's brought them in. Um, we are not passing judgment based on their life before they arrive, nor their life afterwards. Our specialty is not just in um, what we do in terms of our conversations with our patients, but part of our holistic approach means that we're sitting in the data, we're sitting in the education, the wisdom, the knowledge of what it means 
to live, but also what it means to die, what it means to have quality of life and what it means to suffer. We're looking at the pharmacological interventions, meaning the medications that might be oral, that might be IV, that may be more nuanced to offer, offer symptom management. But guess what? Because we're a specialty, we're also looking at non-pharmacological measures. What does it mean to get our patient out to a healing garden? What does it mean to provide um, technological support so that during a pandemic, families can FaceTime and be present? What does it mean to have aromatherapy? What does it mean to have pet therapy? What does it mean to consult with music therapy? What does it mean to create this space? Art therapists, what does it mean to create this specialty and space where our knowledge and wisdom of living, but also dying, of relief, but also suffering, allows us to provide care in a way that is so specialized um, that we can really, hopefully our goal is to impact patients, not just when they're dying, but when they're living, because both both's important, both are important. Um, and so the reason that we need it is the same way that someone would say, if I'm having open heart surgery, I want the best cardiologist that you have. And so this is when I would say, if someone has gotten to a place where um, they're starting to reckon with some of these conversations or they find themselves medically in a turning point, well, I want a specialist who knows, who can walk with me, who can talk with me. And we're collaborative. We are interdisciplinary for a reason because we're not assuming we know everything. And so if someone is coming in with um, a focus that is more cardiac related, we will will consult or collaborate with the cardiologist. Again, palliative care can be leading in the front seat or we could be in the back seat. But again, our focus will always be dignity and 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 the human experience that is interconnected to healthcare. Oh, that's, that's so, so, that's that's so beautiful, man. Oh, and I would say that was my professional answer, but on a personal yeah. level, I don't speak this from a place of I'm an outsider and I'm on the outside providing this care, I've needed this care for my loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, I've walked with my own family as mm -hmm. we have gone through hospice care for my grandfather. And so this was during the pandemic. Um, he was a veteran. And so we had the opportunity um, to get him home. And I collaborated with my grandmother, my aunts, my dad, um, and our, our family, um, my cousins, and providing care at home. And that was his wish. He said that I want to be home. And so part of that was working with a palliative care team. Um, and he had a cardiac diagnosis that was that was a serious illness and, and was terminal. Um, but it started out as like palliative care and symptom management. And as things advanced over time, it became hospice and end of life care but we were able to care for him at home with nurse, a hospice nurse coming to the house, hospice social worker, hospice chaplain, but they're not there 24 seven. So it meant as a family, a lot of that care also fell on us to be an advocate, to do the care, to do the bathing. Um, and when I'm in that setting, I want it to be the granddaughter, um, not necessarily the nurse. So I was leaning very heavily on the hospice team as well as we honored his wishes. And it felt really good um, to know that we gave him time at home and it was quality time. Um, and that was a gift. And I've done that for um, a best friend whose father I helped care for, um, who passed away with hospice and he was given six months to live and lived almost a year and a half home with hospice. So I've seen also where us doing less allowed people to live more and that allowed loved ones to not just age in place at home but to live to live and to be in their surroundings that were familiar and for family members to have access and I think that was the hardest part that I think every healthcare professional during the pandemic um, I think a lot of people just talked about the moral distress and the moral dilemma of when we were restricted visitation, what did it mean when loved ones did not have access during some of the most sacred times? And I would include that with birth, but I would also include that with 
transitioning. So another term of, of end of life or dying. And that's when you needed, I, I saw the value of not just the palliative care team, but hospice teams also being the eyes, ears, and feet for families um, and helping other disciplines as they were navigating that as well. It almost seems, if I put my science hat on, you know, my very just objective, you know, science hat or whatever, it it seems counterintuitive to move someone from a hospital where they have all this, you know, all the technology is there, the staff is there, anyone that could ever respond, you know, you're you're taking them from the place that is literally built to keep them alive and bringing them to a space where they don't have as much access to that kind of of stuff, but they're getting something much more. It feels like, and and it's it's so beyond words. I, I'm I'm struggling to even describe what it is, but but you you touched on just the the humanity of mm-hmm. it, um, and I'm wondering. So I mean. You've been death. Death has been a part of your life for quite some time. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. Um, I I would. And yes, go ahead. Yeah, and and I I'm just curious, like having seen it and and been around, having experienced it yourself, having seen your friends and and other family members go through it. I, I guess how do you how do you think about death? Hmm. That's a really great question. Um, and I do want to just acknowledge, I I feel it, what you're saying. And it's like, I don't even know if there's a true word for what you were describing in the beginning, where it's like, it's interesting that you may, and like, what does it look like to provide a different focus level of care? And sometimes the less being more, like, what does that, I don't even know how to quantify that. But I think the words I would describe there with what you were discussing was, there's something about dignity. There's something about um, being a respecter of persons and personhood. And in hospitals, we do try to create that. I work with amazing nurses, yeah. doctors, nurse practitioners, care technicians, secretary. Like I work with amazing people. And as much as we can, we do try to bring home to the hospital. But the hospital is not home. Right. And so when we can, and there is adequate support, we will never, you know, the goal is never to send anyone home that's not ready or to send anyone home when it's not safe. And there is not care there that can provide this, this care and support. Cause that's important. Um, but when you do, I think what you were describing was that like some of that more is just like the honoring of who that person is. And I think the more also means that family and friends get a front row view of this process that for the last several decades has been restricted in some cases to the hospital. And I think that's part of what's created this taboo and discussion about death and dying. And we've somehow become sort of so separated from it that we no longer can see the beauty. I think we see the beauty in life-saving measures. But when we focus so acutely on life-saving measures, sometimes we miss the part that someone may be suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And so the latter part of your question was like sort of how do I view death and what have these experiences sort of shown me? And I think this is the other layer of of, of who I am is that um mm, I grew up, my grew up and my mom always took us to to church, me and my brother. It was like Sunday mornings, we're getting up, we're going to church. Um, and so I personally identify as Christian and I'm, I don't mean this in a religious way. I mean, like in my relationship with God and my own spiritual walk, I have come to see death and dying um, not as an end, but another beginning Um, and I think for me, there, the part of it being another beginning is the awareness that there is great suffering in this world. Um, 
and that one day all of us will have an end. Um, but my faith and my spirituality spirituality allows me to see that end as another beginning um, and not a final end. And part of that is also the journey and how we get to show up and live here. Um, and so I see life, I would say, as a gift um, and dying a part of that wrapping and it being okay. And this doesn't mean that when I have experiences where someone's been given a, a you know, a, a diagnosis and I know what the outcome will be, it doesn't mean that I don't still grieve. It doesn't mean that there's not pain. It doesn't mean I don't struggle. I am not, um, I'm not immune to the sufferings of this world but it allows me to see what I would say is just a greater interweaving of, of what it means to live and, and dying also being a part of that. And I actually had my Bible open um, to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes um, three, a time for everything. And this is something that I reflect on when I have my own moments where I'm like, man, God, like this person was young. Yeah. Um, why? Yeah. Or this was sudden, the family wasn't ready. Why? Um, and it's not so much. And then sometimes I reframe it. And it's like, it's not so much why. And then I think in my work, it's less of the why, but then I just get to this place where I'm like, once I stop asking why, and sometimes I wrestle with the why, why, why Yeah. I just sit in the the who, mm -hmm. who was this person and how can I now honor their life? How can I honor their family? But this scripture helps me in those moments where I'm wrestling with why a time for everything, for everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And the lines that really stand out to me um, personally, I would say is that there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to cry and there's a time to laugh because I think it is okay to grieve. It's important to grieve. And sometimes there's a lot of grieving that's happening when the person's still living. And then there's nuance in the grief that comes after they're no longer physically here, but there can also be laughter. And I can't tell you how much life is on my unit, even though we're a palliative care unit and we have a lot of end of life patients, I can't tell you how much life and laughter and memories are still shared. And so there can be both. It's the juxtaposition for me there, a time to grieve and a time to dance. Um, and that part again, like, we will grieve and we don't have to grieve alone. Sometimes I may grieve with my colleagues and sometimes I may have to unpack it after the shift or even personally when we've had those, those personal calls. Um, and the time to dance just reminds me like that life is forever moving. And so while we may sit at the, at the tombstone of grief, like there will be room and space to move again at our own pace and at our own rhythm, a time to search and a time to quit searching. And I think for that part, I think of in healthcare where we're searching for cures and there's a time for that, right? What's going on? We don't know. So let's run the test. Let's do the lab work. Maybe we can try this procedure. Let's try these therapies. Let's try this treatment. And there's a time for that. And sometimes in that time, it gives you more time, right? I'm not, as a palliative care nurse, I'm not saying that those other 
disciplines are not necessary and that there's not a time to search. But then there's a time to stop searching because we already have our answer. And I think that's where we are in healthcare. Sometimes we, we're we not good at the other part. We do. we fail to stop searching and sit in the, the transition of not searching. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just end with a time for war and a time for peace. And part of grief, I think there's anger that can come. There's guilt, there's anger, there's sadness, there's fear. It can bring up things that you hadn't thought of. There can be past traumas that have gone unaddressed. There can be relationships that haven't been mended. All of that can come to the surface during this time. But my hope for all patients and families is that there comes a time of peace and that sometimes it's not until that patient passes away. And sometimes it comes before that. Um, but how I see death is also how I see life is that both are, are inevitable. Um, but from my spiritual eyes, I, I don't see it as an ending. I, I see it as a beginning. And I think that's what allows me to go into my work. Um, and see the life that is there. You're 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 touching, I think, on what is this just duality that is ingrained in every aspect of humanity, uh, and to have the perspective that you have, and sort of have such clear insight to this balance that we all have to play with these things every single day. I think that the scripture you read was was so beautiful and and such a just a perfect um such a perfect reading for this moment. This moment that we're all sort of in as people in the world right now because we did just go through 2 years of sadness, death, depression, there are people that didn't make it to yeah. the present day, but we still are smiling. We're still laughing, but that, and that's not to say that, you know, these things are not meant to be, um, we certainly don't leave them behind. We, ca- we always carry them with us. We, we carry these, these people with us, um, but I think that why I like that so much is because it it really does show just the intricacies and, and the complexities and just how freaking hard it is to be a human being. Yeah. You know, like we're all on such a, a wild journey. Um, and I think a lot of times the sort of um, the the public consciousness, doesn't want us to dig into the stuff that's a little on the the opposite end, right? The it wants us to be it wants you to be happy. It wants you to be live a fulfilling career. It wants you to go see a a funny movie. It wants you to buy a fancy car. It wants you to do all this. And all that stuff is amazing. And and you know that's the stuff we all flaunt on social media and what have you. But beneath all of that is this other aspect of it that that is is equally beautiful yeah. we just don't we don't we don't give it the the um the attention it deserves and so when we're all finally faced with it when it's all that is all that we can see all of a sudden you you reach this moment in life where all the fun stuff all the all the stuff that brings you joy you can't even see it anymore and you're forced to be in the quote unquote darkness. I'm, I'm using air quotes because I think that it's, we need to rethink just how we, we talk about all this stuff. Yeah. And um, maybe it's forced to be in the light for the first time. Right. Exactly. It's a, I can, you can see it as darkness or maybe it's that moment where you're forced to be in the light and really ask yourself the things that matter. Right. Because very rarely any, at the end of the day, are my patients saying like, man, I'm sure glad I bought that car or I'm sure glad I, right. you know, right. I, 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 I took this job or I bought this or I bought that. It's like, it's what you even mentioned when I was asking you, like, what's important to you. A lot of times 
what comes up for them instead is that it's the things that they did that mattered. And a lot of times that dealt with like relationships or how they served and showed up. Sometimes they even mentioned some of the losses, but how those losses became lessons. Sometimes they share their lineage and their family. Sometimes they shared their traditions with us so that we can best honor their wishes. And so I think you're right that we are ingrained currently culturally, especially I'll say like in Western culture and in the United States currently is again, that we we really have gotten to a place where I think science and technology has taken us far and will continue to, but that can't be it. And there's this part where it always goes back to humanity um, and the human spirit. Um, and that's where I think we have to all do that internal wrestling. And this is where my nursing history and my my um, my re my research on that side has helped me also to see this in a different way is that I had the privilege of interviewing women um, who desegregated schools of nursing and healthcare systems. So they're navigating um, education, they're coming of age during segregation and then navigating their nursing and professional education during desegregation. And Virginia, this was not easy. Um, you had Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, but then in Virginia, we had massive resistance, which followed, meaning that there were statewide um, government-led initiatives, not even initiative strategies that said, we will not be desegregating our schools, even though there's been a federal mandate. And so really it was about a decade later until you really saw the beginning implications of what it would look like Virginia for Virginia to reckon with desegregation. And that process really lasted through the 80s. And schools of nursing and healthcare um, systems are really interesting to look at. And as I talked to them, many of them grew up in rural spaces and places in Virginia where they did not have immediate access to healthcare systems. That was based on geography, but that was also based on racialized exclusionary practices. And you still know what this means? It meant people were born at home. There were midwives that came from the community. And so they saw births and then there were deaths at home. And you grew up seeing that and knowing that it was a part of life and knowing how to honor life. And again, it doesn't mean that the there wasn't lack and there, that there wasn't suffering, but because the community and families had access to both birth, births and deaths and that process, I think it made it a topic that wasn't surrounded by fear. It was surrounded by reality. It was surrounded by, oh, it was an honor. You know, I I, I got to care for my loved one um, or I saw my mom care for my aunt or my grandmother and everyone is buried right here in, in the land. And so it was this caring for one another was a tradition and, you know, families would come and show up and provide meals and there would be beautiful homegoing services, which still are a part of our tradition. And it meant that you were going home because there was so much suffering here to also know that this is not my final resting place and home. But it, I think that that access, that intimate access and visibility made dying less scary because you maybe also got to see what it looked like to have a good death. And I'll use quotes with good death because everyone's idea of what it means to die and it be a good death looks different. For someone, it could be, I wanna be home. For someone, it could be, I need to be in the hospital. And for someone, it could be, I don't, I wanna be awake. For someone, it could be like, I, I don't, I don't wanna be awake if that means I have to be in pain. Um, it could be surrounded by family. It could be surrounded by coworkers because maybe you never had kids and you don't have any family here. And so your coworkers are your team or your neighbors are your team. And so it can look different, but I think, they, what I learned from talking and sitting in their wisdom was that they were nurses before they ever stepped into schools of nursing. And part of that was the training, the real life training and experiences they had at home. And 
I do think that we are coming to a place where there are many who are saying, I want to die at home. And we have hospice, home hospice um, services that are available. Um, and so I do think there's a change in the same way that you start to see home deliveries or birthing centers and 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 different ways of, of coming into the world and different ways of leaving this world. But I think to your point, I think part of the disconnect is that maybe we shielded families from seeing it. And I wonder if we shielded it because we weren't always good at managing the suffering. Maybe we shielded it because we felt that families and friends couldn't handle seeing it. Um, the pandemic certainly forced us to restrict visitation. And so there's a whole group of people that that are grieving for different reasons. And some of that grief is that they weren't able to be there. And I do wanna hold space to acknowledge that that wasn't by choice. And I'm, my heart aches still um, for families and communities that were forced that we're forced to sort of um, not be present. And I understand why, right? I, I understand the, the the complexities of the time and where we were. Um, and I also am feeling for the healthcare providers that had to, to navigate that. And I think for all of us, I think for me, I know I can say that it was a reminder all the more that like the presence of families or friends or loved ones. I'll say loved ones, right? Because our families are not always our nuclear family. Our families are not who we're born into. It's who we see to be a part of our community and family. But it made me value their presence all the more. I always felt that they were important. I always knew I needed them to collaborate and provide exceptional care. But it showed all the more that it's not just about the care that's happening while the patients are living, that it's about the care that can happen when the patients are no longer there. And how we say goodbye matters. Yeah. How do you think we can move the needle more on this? Because I think a lot of people have heard a lot of the stuff that we just talked about. It, I think a lot of people understand or have at least heard papers or studies, what have you, where they do interview people that are um, kind of in their last handful of years. And they acknowledge that it's not that they all universally say, I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I didn't work as hard. I wish I wasn't so focused on, on money. Um, like how do you, yeah, I guess, how do you think we can start to shift the needle into having more of a focus on, on our, on our humanity and, and less of this kind of uh, I know I'm, I'm being overly cynical, I guess, because that's just where my brain is right now. But I don't know. It does, it, we live in a very materialistic world and, and it doesn't seem to be, I was about to say, it does, it's, it's not going away, but I will also add that I think that there also does, and I'm, and I'm inspired by this conversation with you and, and this is affirming this thought that there are more people that are stepping up and saying, Hey, there's this whole other spiritual side to life that has value and hell might actually increase your physical health as well. You know, like there are, um, yeah, I guess like what, what, how do we move the needle to, to create more of a balance in those two aspects of life? Ooh, yeah. I, oh, so much to unpack there. Um, so as a nurse, one way I think that we can move this conversation forward, and I will say as a palliative care nurse, but anyone who works in palliative care, hospice, end of life care, but you don't even have to work in this specialty to start having these conversations. But I think it is starting to ask some of those questions that we asked at the beginning of who are you and and what's really important to you? Um, what are some values that you have? And I think there's a level of honesty that we can have with our patients. I think sometimes we wonder, are they ready to hear, have some of these tough conversations? But I think what I'm starting to find is that even if they're ready, not re fully ready, planting seeds and having conversations mm. that force us. I, I literally, I think 
probably when I was in nursing school, um, cause I used to, I volunteered in hospice before I was a nurse. So before I got into nursing school, I did volunteer in hospice. Um, never thought that I was going to work in hospice or palliative care. Um, I thought I was going to do home health, community health, um, work, ended up working as a cardiac nurse. And then through that experience and worldview, I really enjoy collaborating with our palliative care team and realized this is the specialty for me. Why? Because I realized there was an alignment with my values and my purpose. And I say purpose because we do need to live and be able to eat, sleep, have certain securities that like, I mean, there are things that like, these are some of the things we're talking about are luxuries, right? Like everyone doesn't have access right now to clean water. Everyone does not have access to shelter. Everyone does not have access to healthcare. Everyone does not have access to safety. Um, and so I realize as I'm talking about this, it's somewhat in a utopian and style, but it's like, for me, I think part of me navigating my professional work was realizing like, this is aligned with my purpose work and my value and my values. And from that space, how I show up is different. It is important, right? Like I do want to be able to pay my bills. I do want to have access to healthcare. I do want to feel valued and seen at my job. I don't want to deal with micro or macro aggressions. Um, like, right. But also what moves me into that space is not just my paycheck. It's the colleagues I get to collaborate with, the psychologists, the chaplain, the providers, my other nursing peers, the patients, the families. And so there's not a day that I show up that I'm not like, wow, that I think I received more than I could have possibly given today. Um, and my access to death, my access to transitioning, my access to dying makes me think about death every day. Um, not in a morbid way, not in a way that I, it, it, it moves me still. It moves me still. It moves me to really think about when I'm making decisions, what's important. It moves me to have conversations with my parents in my 20, I'm in my thirties now, but when I was in my twenties, even saying mom and dad, if anything ever happened to me, I want you to know that I want to be cremated. Um, that I, I, if for any reason I have an illness and it's irreversible, it's a serious illness and it, it's terminal um, and I'm suffering, comfort care and end of life care is important to me. If I can be home, I wanna be home and surrounded by all of you. I don't wanna be a burden to you all. So may you tap on my community of friends and family so that you're not doing this alone. Um, it made me wanna be clear in that. It made me want to say I signed up and I, I, if my organs can help somebody else, like I'm okay with that. You don't have to worry about making that decision. I'm okay with that. And that's not for everyone. Right. But it also forced me to say to my parents, like mom and dad, I want to be clear on like, what do you want? And can we put this in writing? And I still need to get them to put, they have a will of course, but I do want, we've talked about out loud, whether this is like in the car whether this is in the living room, just randomly, like we'll talk about what do you want? And I know what my parents would want. Um, and we talk about it openly because I also have a brother and I want all of us to be on the same page and clear. I don't want us to be wrestling with the guilt that comes from, did we make the right decision? Is this what they wanted? Is this not what we wanted? Did we honor and respect their wishes? And so um, those are things that I think that like when you, as healthcare professionals who have access to the sacred view the sacred um, access to bearing witness to someone's latter half of their life. Um, what does it mean for us to inform the people even that we love and we're close to about this work, um, about these options and about these conversations because it ripples out. And I think what you're doing and inviting all of us in to really reflect on these topics is also a start. What does it look like to have a podcast that is dedicated to um, death, dying, living, right? Like that's important. And I do think we can be creative. Like this isn't restricted to healthcare professionals doing this work. What does it look like if you're in art in the arts, 
What does it look like to depict dying and death? What does it look like in our spiritual spaces to talk about death and dying and not save that for only funerals? Um, what does it look like to save that for a Sunday service or for a week weekday? Like, what does it look like for us to show that this is a part of life? Our films can show it. Um, our TV series can show it. Um, and I don't just mean the highlight reels because um, I do think it's important for people to see both sides that it's it's complicated and but it can also be beautiful. And so I would say one of the ways I'm committed to doing that work is doing that work as a nurse and at the bedside, but doing that work in my own intimate community. And what I have found is as a black woman, as a black nurse, as um, as a daughter, as a granddaughter, um, as a sibling, as a godmother, as a friend, um, as a neighbor, it's important for me to have these conversations with the people that I love. Um, because to not do it feels like a disservice. Tori, if everyone listening to this had access to someone that was half as powerful as you are, uh, I think we would all be in, in a much, much, much better spot. You are truly just just such an inspiration. You've given me just so much to, to think about uh, with this conversation. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for the work that you have done, are doing, are going to continue to do. Um, you are exactly the type of person that this world needs right now. And I cannot thank you enough for everything you've done, for giving me the time today. You are just, you you are amazing. And I, I can't say enough good things about you. Thank you so much. Well, Zach, thank you. It's been a privilege and honor to just sit down and have this conversation with you. Thank you for holding space. Um, and I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that through my line sister, Shannon, I had the privilege of, of walking with you all during a very intimate time. And I, I thank you for just going, going above and beyond to ensure that folks know that they're not alone and that there is access. And so the, in parting, I'll just say that every healthcare system does not have a palliative care unit. I'm fortunate to work at a health system that's had one for, um, 20 years plus. And so I recognize that there may be questions about, well, what can I do? But most communities have access to hospice. Um, and it doesn't mean that their providers are not familiar to, familiar with the not familiar with the palliative care um, approach. And so these are things that you can be discussing with your healthcare providers, should you or your family members find themselves in this state and place. Um, but you don't have to walk this journey alone. Um, and I'll just end with saying that being with the dying has taught me so much more about how to be with the living. And I just hope that for all of us. That was Tori Tucker, everyone. Thank you very much to her and all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do me a massive favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, another big way to help the show would be to give us a follow on Instagram at selfassemblypod. That's selfassemblypod. We'll catch you in a couple weeks for our final conversation on death. But until then, I hope you all have a wonderful start to your new year and plant all sorts of wonderful seeds to be sown this time next year. Catch you all next time. Mm -hmm.